Good evening. Tonight we're continuing on in our series on Psalms of Resilience, which is looking at a number of the Psalms in the first part of the book of Psalms, which is labeled Book One. Tonight we're looking at Psalm 36, which can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 465. Let's read the psalm together. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Where evildoers lie fallen, they are thrust down, unable to rise. The first thing we notice when reading this psalm is that it's really divided into two distinct parts. The first part, verses 1 to 4, is about the wicked. The remaining verses, verses 5 to 12, is all about God's character. When I was preparing for this evening, I was very tempted to skip over the first four verses. Because after all, the title for tonight is Your Love, O Lord. So what has the wicked got to do with that? And besides, when people read in the Bible or hear about the wicked, they tend to switch off. After all, you couldn't count me as being wicked, is what people think. We tend to reserve the category of wicked for people in history like Hitler or Stalin, who did really bad things. But us? Can I be counted as being wicked? You see, we don't identify ourselves as that. But the thing is, as we look at the first four verses of this psalm, it's got a lot to do with all of us. We don't need to be wicked in the sense that we've done lots and lots of horrible, really evil things. But what it says speaks to each of us individually. 
let's look at the first four verses. The first thing we find in verse 1 is that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. In other words, sin speaks deeply inside a person. You see, sin is not like a paper cut. I'm holding up a finger, and yesterday I got the equivalent of a paper cut on it. From where you're sitting, you can't see the small, insignificant line of that cut. Tomorrow morning, if I look at it, it probably will be gone. Sin isn't like that. Sin isn't something which is small and fixes itself and disappears. Sin is deep in our hearts. Sin is more like a cancer. A cancer which is deep inside us. A cancer, a disease for which we don't have a cure. It is fatal. And it's working from deep inside. Out. That's the first thing. Sin is deep inside all of us. But we also find out about the wicked that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, this expression, fear of God, I'll need to explain it to you. Because quite often in the Bible when we see the phrase fear of God, it is a technical term. But actually tonight in this passage, it actually means what we think it means. It means to be afraid, to be scared. But I thought it was worthwhile to explain the difference between the technical term fear of God, which means to have a reverence and respect and to recognize who God is, as opposed to just being scared of Him. Now, I was trying to think of a good illustration to illustrate the difference. And I've come up with one. In many ways, it's not that good, but it should give you a feeling of the difference between being scared of God and having a fear of God in the sense of having a reverence and a respect for Him. I sometimes do a bit of DIY around the house, but I only do nice, easy jobs like putting up curtain rails, nice, simple things. Because I have got a confession to make. There are certain poor tools that I am scared and terrified of. And one of them is on the screen. It is a table saw. Now basically, for anyone who doesn't know, a table saw is a bit of machinery which has a very sharp blade, which turns really fast, is really sharp, and used to cut wood. When I think of the table saw, and I think about trying to use it, I can come up with lots and lots and lots of different ways that I could do myself serious damage. I am scared, I am terrified of a table saw. That's fear in the normal sense of the word. But I have a friend 
who's a technology teacher. And I imagine he has a different type of fear of the table saw. He knows how to use it properly. Yes, he knows it is dangerous. He knows that there's risks, but he respects it and knows the right way to approach it, how to approach it safely. In that sense, he has a fear of the table saw in the sense of respect and given its rightful place, which is a bit like the fear of God in the technical term, of giving God his rightful place, respecting him and honoring him. On the other hand, I'm sure he has pupils in his class who have no fear of the table saw. They're quite happy to mess about, throw things about the classroom or whatever, while someone's using the tool like that. They don't know to be afraid. They don't know the damage it could do. They might even use it themselves, but they've no fear of it. They use it the wrong way. They're letting themselves in for trouble. They have no fear. And so it is with the wicked man. He has no fear of the Lord. As far as he's concerned, God has no impact on him whatsoever. He's not afraid of him. As far if he thinks about God at all, it's God who's way up there, out of the way. He isn't going to affect him. There's no fear of God before his eyes. But you know, those two things, sin deep within them, and no fear of God, results in the character of the wicked being seen in the rest of those verses. What sort of things does the wicked do? They do evil acts. They're convinced they won't get caught. They're convinced they can do whatever they like and no one will find them out. They lie. They cause trouble. They don't act in a wise manner. They don't do good. And even when they're meant to be sleeping in their beds, they're thinking up of more evil and trouble they can cause. If you look at the language all about them, it's all self-centered. It's all about them, what they're plotting, what they can do, what they can get away with. In many ways, they can be summed up in the last two last couple of lines of this section. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. That is the wicked man. But what a contrast when we come to the rest of the psalm. When we compare what it has to say about God to the wicked. You see, in the rest of the psalm, the psalmist David is focusing on God's character, his love, faithfulness, righteousness, and his judgments. David is concerned about what God is like. You can just see it in the psalm. You probably can't make out all the words, but I've highlighted here where it refers to God's character. In the first section, it's all over it, and then it's mentioned in the next two sections. God's character is important to David. He wants us to get to know what God is like. 
But the wicked are ignorant of all that. They don't know God. But David wants us to get to know what he is like. And that raises the question for us this evening. When we think about God, when we talk about God, do we just talk about what he has done? The things he's done? Or do we also talk and consider who he is, his character, what he is like as a person? Because the problem is when we just focus on what he has done, sometimes we can develop an attitude of, what is in it for me? What am I getting out of this? Whereas we really need to appreciate who he is. It's a bit like at Christmas and birthday times when we receive a gift from someone. Do we focus solely on the gift? Or do we appreciate the person who gave it to us? And it's interesting that at the Last Supper, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, yes, he set up the pictures of the bread of his body broken and the cup of the new covenant of his blood shed for us. But the way he described it was, do this in remembrance of me. He wanted us to remember who he is, what he's like, as well as what he has done for us. Now let us take time to look at the rest of the psalm and to find out what it has to say to us about God's character. The first thing we notice in verse 5 and 6 when it talks about God's character, it says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. You see, when David's talking about God's love, he's using a picture that extends way up to the heavens, way up there. It's something which is big, something which is large, something which is beyond our imaginations. God just doesn't have a wee small bit of love. He is massive when it comes to love. After all, in 1 John Chapter 4 and verse 8, it says, God is love. It's an integral part of who he is. God is a God who loves us and cares for us. But God's love is not like our love. Because the psalmist says, your steadfast love. You see, when we as human beings love, quite often our love changes. It isn't constant. It can even depend on how we feel on a particular day. Whether we've got a cold. Whether work's stressful. A trivial example is how we use the word love at times for insignificant things. We might say that we love pizza. But then we discover some new delicacy and then we love that instead. But more seriously, even when we look at our relationships with other people, our love changes. It isn't constant. Our our compassion and caring for people changes with time. 
Maybe some of you here tonight, when you first started nursery school, met that friend. And your friend through nursery school, primary school, and secondary school. You were best friends forever. Nothing was going to separate you. You are going to be friends forever and ever. But then you went to different universities. You maybe got jobs in different parts of the country. Maybe you got married and started having families. And you went from maybe meeting up regularly when you were at school to maybe once every six months to once a year. Then maybe once every two years. And in the end, you never really got round to arranging to meet them again. That love and compassion is sort of faded out. And even between a husband and a wife, the love we can have in marriage sadly can end. We just have to look at the divorce rate in our country. Human beings' ability to love and the way we love just isn't steadfast. Just doesn't last. But God's love lasts forever. He doesn't change His mind. He is love. He always will love. And you know, the good thing about God is He's always been a God of love. When we look at the Bible, when we look at eternity past, there was the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all in a loving relationship with each other in the past. Before anything else was created, there was love there in God. And He opens up that love to us. God's steadfast love doesn't change. He's a God who loves us. But not only that, we also read that your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Again, another picture of how big God's character is. He is a faithful God. He's a God who won't let us down. He won't desert us. If God makes a promise, He will keep it. Keep it. He is faithful and true. He won't go back on His word. But the psalmist goes on to talk about God's character some more. He goes on to say, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Again, we have that wonderful picture of how big God's character is. And if we take the two illustrations together about God's righteousness is like the mountain of God, if you think of something like Mount Everest, how tall, how high that is, we can't imagine it. But if you contrast that to the depths of the ocean, the ocean deeps which go down even deeper than Everest is high. And if you compare the depths to the heights, that's God's character. What He is like, His right, His righteousness and His judgments. It's beyond our imaginations. Because God is a righteous God. Righteousness is all about God doing what is right. Everything He does is right. He doesn't do anything wrong. And ultimately, He will ensure that at the end of the day that everything will be right. That all the wrongs will be accounted for and sorted 
out and his judgments are right. He is a God who when he decides things, they are right. When he judges, his justice is right. And at this point, the wicked at the beginning of the psalm should pay attention. They think that their transgressions, that their iniquity cannot be found out and hated. But God knows about it. And God will justly judge. God's righteousness is beyond our imagination. His judgments are right as well. In many ways, at this point, it seems maybe a bit bleak, a bit confusing. How can we have a God of love and faithfulness, but yet a God who is righteous and will do what is right in terms of judgment? But the psalmist reassures us at this point. Because what does he go on to say? He says, man and beast you save, O Lord. So God is a God who wants to save us. And just think about those descriptions of God's character. They're very big descriptions. And many ways, if you think about it, if you think about God's love and faithfulness going all the way up to the heavens, and His judgments going down to the deep, it can seem big and impersonal. Too big for me to get my head around. Too far out there to care about me. But the psalmist then brings it down to a personal level. He says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. He brings it down to himself, his personal experience. He's saying, your love is precious to me. It's something I love. It's something I value. Do we value God's character as well? Is it precious to us? And then the psalmist goes on the list Various things coming out of God's character. Various things his readers would think of, the people singing actually, the psalm would think of about what God has done. He starts off with the picture of children of mankind taking refuge in the shadow of your wings. This is a picture of a mother hen stretching out her wings to hide her chicks when danger comes. The mother hen is putting herself between danger and her children. And it's a picture used throughout different Psalms. And in the book of Ruth, Boaz describes Ruth as sheltering under God's wings, under his protection. But for the Hebrews, for the Jews, there would be another echo and the idea of God standing between them and danger. An echo which goes back to the Passover, to the last plague in Egypt, where the firstborn in the household was to die. The Hebrews were to paint the blood on the door. But when we read the account of what it's about, we find it's God and the destroying destroyer going through Egypt. And it's the destroyer who's killing the firstborn. 
But when God sees the blood on the door, God stands between the destroyer and the door. God stands between his people and the danger. God protects his children. He takes the danger upon himself. And as you look at other aspects of that, there's so many different parts of the Old Testament which spring to their minds. It talks about the abundance of your house. The children of Israel would immediately think of God's house, the temple, where the sacrifices were being were made, where God provided a way for them to be able to approach Him, a way for sin to be covered. But notice the word abundance. We're not dealing with a God who's measly, who gives a wee bit. It's an abundant God, a God who gives generously. And also talks about drinking from the river of your delights. And notice that it is a river they're getting to drink from. Not a wee stream or wee trickle of water. It's a river. Abundance. But the children, but the people hearing this and singing this would also get their minds put back to the book of Genesis. Because when it talks about the lights, in the book of Genesis, you have the Garden of Eden, which could also be translated the Garden of Delights. It would make them think back to when God and man had that fellowship in the garden. And that also links in with other aspects of the psalm, the fountain of life. You have the tree of life in Genesis. And also, in your light we see light. How it's from the light of God we see. And in Genesis, we have God creating light. So they would have thought back to all the things God had done for them. But you know, tonight we're looking at the psalm from our point of view, from the knowledge we have. And I can't help but also look at those words and think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because those phrases in the psalm, the hen sheltering her chicks, what did Jesus say when he was lamenting over Jerusalem? He said in John, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The Lord Jesus wanted to gather the people of Jerusalem, his people, his chosen people, under his wings and protect them but they weren't willing. We also have the picture in the psalm of getting drinks from the river, getting water, and the picture of life. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the source of water to give us eternal life, to enable us never to thirst again spiritually. 
And when it comes to life and light, what does John write in this gospel in the chapter 1 and verse 4? It says of the Lord Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus is the source of life and the source of light so we can see properly. You see, it is in Jesus that ultimately we see the character of God. It is in Jesus that we see what He's like. We see His steadfast love, His faithfulness, His righteousness and His judgments. But there's one place in particular that we see all of those come together. And that is at the cross. We see Jesus' love for us in that He died for us. But at the same time, we see Him taking the punishment for our sin. God the Son bearing our punishment so that His righteousness and justice would be fulfilled. But unlike the wicked, we need to fear God. We need to come to Him and repent and ask for forgiveness. But what was the point of Jesus doing that on the cross? It was so we could have a relationship with God again. So we could get to know Him. He wants us to know His Father. As Jesus defined eternal life in His prayer in the Gospel of John, it was, this is eternal life, that they may know you, you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Jesus wants us to come to Him. So we can get to know His Father. So we can get to know Him. So we can get to know His character and value it. He wants us to focus, not only on what He's done for us, but on who He and the Father are. The psalmist then goes on to conclude. He continues to end the psalm with a prayer. He prays that God's love, that steadfast love, would continue to those who know Him. Those who know Him. And also that the righteousness would be known to them as well. And the psalmist also prays for protection from the wicked, from the foot of the arrogance. But the psalmist also concludes with the fate of the wicked. They are thrust down, unable to rise. You see, the psalm really contrasts the wicked with the character of God. When we look at the character of the wicked and what he's like at the beginning, I can't help but get a very small picture. It's all about deep in his heart. It feels small, his bed. Whereas when we come to the Lord, when we come to God, it's so much bigger. It's beyond our imaginations, his love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, and his judgments. But the question is for us, here tonight, how do we respond to God's character? What He is like? Are we going to be like the wicked who have no fear, who don't even think about Him? Or are we going to be like the psalmist 
and appreciate God. Want to get to know Him. Want to experience His love and worship Him for who He is. Do you value God? Do you value His character? I pray that God will help us as we continue to sing His praise now to focus on Him, to focus on His character and what He is like. May God help us to worship Him.